Now, as I've said, I'm reading from Lamentations chapter 3, and I'm going to commence to read at verse 18. Lamentations chapter 3 and the 18th verse, and here's what we read. Jeremiah is the speaker because he's the one who is attributed uh, to the writing of this short book, the book called Lamentations. In verse 18, Jeremiah says, My strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. Remembering mine affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall, my soul hath them still in remembrance, and is humbled in me. This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. I want to speak to you today about the faithful one. And in the preparation of the messages of this last two weeks and now this one today, they are all set in the context of the experience that we are going through as a nation. And words that will bring a message of inspiration and uh, lift our vision and our eyes and our thoughts above the surrounding situation and lift our eyes to the Lord. And this, of course, is what I want to do again today. So here we are with three amazing verses in this passage that I've just read to you. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. And then these words, great is thy faithfulness. You will, of course, immediately think and reflect on the linkage between this and what Yvonne has been sharing with us about the hymn written by T.O. Chisholm. A brief background and get the context of these words and what has been happening in the life of Jeremiah here. The book of Lamentations is located in the Bible immediately after the prophecy of Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet because he bore the burden of the nation and the anxiety in his soul was expressed in tears when he said, Oh, that my head were a fountain of waters and a fountain of tears. And, you know, as he said that, he was a man who expressed his passion in his tears. He was called the weeping prophet. When the book of Lamentations was penned, he was about 60 years of age. And by that time, Jeremiah had lived to see the dreadful destruction of his beloved city, Jerusalem. It, of course, was totally destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar's armies that had come from Babylon in the years 587 to 586 BC. His fellow countrymen had been carried away into captivity, a captivity which was going to last 70 years. They were going to go to Babylon, and of course that was a long journey to go on foot. And there it says that they sat down by the rivers of Babylon and they wept. They said, we hanged our harps in the willows and we wept. There they were taunted by their captors, who said, sing us one of the Lord's songs. And they said, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? You can see how bereft they were now, but it need not have been that way. Jeremiah had warned them, he had pleaded with them to turn from their idolatry, to turn from their rebelliousness, and to turn back to God. But of course they scoffed and laughed and mocked and persecuted the prophet of God, 
But of course, everything that Jeremiah had warned them of had now come upon them. This actually was the third invasion of Israel at that time, 587 to 586, because before this, in the previous 18 years, there had been two other uh, invasions by Babylon's armies. But this was the most devastating of the three. And Lamentations is a record of the prophet's heartbreaking experience. That's why the book has the title that it has. It's given to it in the form of the Latin Vulgate, Lamentia, or Lamentia, and means the funeral dirges. And of that, there are five in the book of Lamentations. The Hebrew title of the book is found in the first word, in the first verse. The Hebrew word is Ika, and it's expressed in its anglified form as How. How does the city sit solitary? The city that was full of people. Jeremiah asks the question, how could it be? In actual fact, if you look carefully, it's not really a question. It's an exclamation. How could this be? This can't really have happened. Chapter 2 and verse 1, we have a repetition of the word. How has the Lord covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud? Oh, the cloudy day that had come, the dark clouds of judgment and chastening that had come over the city and over the people. How on earth has this happened? Chapter 4 and verse 1. How has the gold become dim? How has the most fine gold changed? How in the world could this have happened to this people? this people of the covenant, this people who had the promises, this people who had the privileges that no other nation had. And now we see them, as Jeremiah says here, how has the gold changed? And the picture there, that word changed, means that it had been uh, transformed from uh, beautiful vessels of gold to broken pottery thrown on a garbage heap. What a picture. What a change. You know, it was Rembrandt who painted uh, the wonderful master of Jeremiah lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem. He did that masterpiece in 1630. And it's the picture of an elderly man sitting on a rock. A copy of the scriptures is laid to his left-hand side. And behind him on his right is a scene of people fleeing from a burning city. A scene of human and natural tragedy. And in that context, the prophet had reached the depths of self-despair. In chapter 3, in verses 17 and 18, I read verse 18, but what does it say in verse 17? Verse, uh, chapter 3, And thou hast removed my soul far off from peace. I forgot prosperity. Of course, I told you last week that the word for peace was the word shalom. It just doesn't mean peace. It also includes the concept of prosperity and health and well-being. But Jeremiah says, my shalom is far removed. My peace, my prosperity, my health, my well-being, it is far removed. Verse 18, my strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. Literally, he says, my splendor is gone. And Jerusalem was his splendor. The people were his splendor, even though they were so disobedient and so difficult to work with. But now the glory of the city and the hope of his heart has taken wings and gone. But you know, my dear friends, 
We have often heard the saying, The darkest hour is just before the dawn. The rays of hope begin to climb across Jeremiah's sky, because from that hopeless situation that we read about in verse 7, my hope is gone, we find a very different note in verse 21. He says, I have hope. What has happened in the meantime? Well, he has turned his vision from the things around him to look up to the Lord. And when we look up to the Lord, we see God being where he has always been. He's on his throne. He's in control. He's the sovereign Lord. And if we were to look around us, we might lose hope. We might lose courage like so many people and many who feel there's nothing to live for. And of course, they're now feeling suicidal in the circumstances and they're pressed out of measure. And that's a tragic situation to be in. But in the midst of hopelessness. Jeremiah looks up and he finds a source, a fountain of hope. He finds a place in which he can cast anchor. It was Dr. A.W. Tozer, the well-known preacher and writer, who defined hope as the divine alchemy that transmutes the base metal of adversity into gold. Let me say that again. Hope is the divine alchemy or the chemistry that transmutes the base metal of adversity into gold. Therefore have I hope. What a transmutation in the heart of Jeremiah. Now Jeremiah begins to see what God is like. He begins to see what God is doing over and above and in and through all that's happening, even through the fire and flames of destruction. We might find it difficult to trace the hand of God in the situation in the world today, but I assure you that he is sovereign and he is working to a purpose and it is always ultimately for his glory and, of course, with our good. This is the testimony and the trust of the child of God. He plants his footsteps, says William Kuyper. God moves in a mysterious way. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. And that's still true. So what is Jeremiah's affirmation? Verse 21. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Here's my first simple thought and the last three thoughts of the message today. It's a blessed reflection. Whatever these people had been, and they had been disobedient, idolatrous, rebellious, sinful, and whatever they had been through, besieged, famished, stripped, chained, carried captive, isolated, chastened, one thing is true, they had not been utterly consumed. And that's the strength of the word. They had not been utterly consumed. And why was that? Well, Jeremiah tells us, verse 22, he says it is because of the Lord's mercies. It is because of the Lord's compassions. You know, as I thought about this, I thought, well, this was not the reflection of just 60 years, the length and span of Jeremiah's life at this point in time. This was the reflection that went back beyond Jeremiah reached back into the Psalms, a thousand BC, into the life of David, the life of David in the days of writing those wonderful Psalms and many other writings and experiences of his day, his mercy to Mephibosheth, 
the bond between him and Jonathan, the days of King David. It went back beyond that. It actually went back to the days of Abraham and beyond. Because the mercy of God reaches right back into eternity. You know, allow me to explain this word in a little bit more detail in the moments that remain to me. The Hebrew term for mercy or mercies in the Bible is the word hesed. The hesed of God. It is of the Lord's mercies. It is of the Lord's hesed that we are not consumed. That was a unique word to the Hebrew language. It's not found in any other Semitic language. It occurs some 300 times in all its forms in the Old Testament. In actual fact, it's like a multifaceted diamond in its expressive beauty. I could never begin in this brief message to explain to you and expound to you everything that is encompassed and and wrapped up in that tremendous word, the mercies of God, the hesed of God. It takes in the concept of kindness and goodness and grace and steadfast love and, of course, the word mercy. It's generally couched in the relationship of God in a covenant relationship with his people. No wonder the psalmist could say, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness, for his hesed. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. For his mercy, his hesed, endureth forever, Psalm 107. Actually, in the 136th Psalm, 26 times, 26 verses from eternity to the level of creation, right up to the history of Jeremiah's day and Jeremiah's people and throughout their history, the message is trumpeted out. His mercy, his hesed, endureth forever. And that's, of course, something which many of you will be aware of. His mercy endureth forever. And he says here, his mercy endureth forever because his compassions fail not. Who God is determines how he acts. And it is because he is a merciful God that he demonstrates mercy. He shows compassion. He's moved in his inner being. We read in the New Testament of bowels of compassion. And of course, it's much stronger than the word sympathy. Jesus Christ was moved with compassion. And compassion is a love that's willing to pay a price willing to go to any lengths to demonstrate affection and empathy and to be identified with the people that the message goes to and the feeling relates to. And even when it has been spurned and exploited, it's so beautifully brought out in the life of the prodigal son after he had done everything that he had done in Luke chapter 15 verse 20 as he comes back in his rags and comes back in his shame. It says his father saw him a great way off and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. His father had compassion, compassion. That's the word. It's almost like the word has said, mercies, tender mercies. I can't help but link this into, of course, the greatest demonstration of the has said of God, the mercies of God, demonstrated in Calvary's sacrifice. Mercy there was great, 
said the song at the beginning of the program, and grace was free and pardon there was multiplied to me. The compassion of the cross work of Jesus speaking out into our earth, into our world, where the just one, the just one, died for us, the unjust. What for? That he might bring us to God. That, of course, is one portion of the thoughts of these verses. There is also a present consolation. They, that is, his compassions are new. Great is thy faithfulness. Verse 23. Can you imagine sitting in the debris of a demolished city with a dispossessed population, dispersed now, and people who would never again see their homeland, never again walk the streets of Jerusalem, never be able to come back and see the beautiful temple, because 70 years later their descendants would return, but they would not. And yet to be in that situation and make such a statement? Someone has said this, Unbelief looks at God through our circumstances and brings despair. But faith causes us to look at our circumstances through God and gives us reassurance. And I think that's a profound statement and one well worth recalling. We used to sing a beautiful hymn, New every morning it's new. The love of God to me is wonderfully new. New every morning it's new. The mercy of the Lord to me is wonderfully new. Great is his faithfulness. Constant is his love. Great is his saving power coming from above. New every morning it's new. The love of Calvary is wonderfully new. New every morning it's new. The mercy fresh outpoured. Yes, the mercy fresh outpoured is wonderfully new. He is our daily strength. He's our daily guide. If we will wait on him and in him abide, and then the repetition of the first four lines, new, every morning it's new. The love of God to me is wonderfully new. At the conclusion of this little message, verse 24 we have what I've called a sufficient provision. The Lord is my portion. Therefore, therefore will I hope in him. Everything else has been torn away. His friends, his neighbors, the city, the temple. But one reality remains. My Lord, my portion and the significance of the word means he is my all in all. In fact, in Psalm 119, we find those wonderful words in verse 57. Thou art my portion, O Lord. You know, the Levite priests owned no land. Yes, all the other tribes were given land in the land of Canaan. But the Lord was their portion. And the Lord has surrounded my life as a fence with his mercy and compassion. It's the significance of a new beginning as well. He has marked me as his own with the blood mark of Calvary's sacrifice, and he is the preserver of my soul. I wish you could spend more time developing that whole matter of those last few sentences, but time is gone. It has beaten me again. 
But here's a beautiful hymn by Charles Price Jones. Jesus Christ is made to me all I need, all I need. Let me leave you with another word by Fanny Crosby. Thou my everlasting portion, more than friend or life to me, all along my pilgrim journey, Savior, let me walk with thee, close to thee, close to thee, all along life's pilgrim journey, Savior, let me walk with thee. It was El Nathan who penned the other beautiful hymn, Thou Remainest, Blessed Redeemer. wonder today if you got such hope. I wonder today if you got such assurance. And even as a child of God today, I trust that these verses, this little triad, these three verses in Lamentations chapter 3, the eighth triad in the chapter, I trust that these wonderful words are a blessing to you today. Let's think about the words. Let's think about the blessed recollection as we think back to the mercies of the Lord. Let's think about the present consolation. Let's think, as we've come to the last part, about the sufficiency of the Lord himself, that wonderful sufficient provision. And if you are a stranger to the Lord Jesus today, why not trust him? Why not open up your heart to him and allow him to come in and make himself real to you? And then you will be able to say, along with Jeremiah, all that he has said in these words.